just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Money Management, your antidote to conventional wisdom. My name is Mike Mayo. We're all set for another hour of financial news, a recap of what's been going on in the economic world, and most importantly, how it all affects you. We'll be talking about items that came across our radar this week, and if you have a topic or something you'd like us to address uh, on a later show, please just send us an email at info at opus111group.com. That's info at opus, O-P-U-S, 111group.com. And if uh, you uh, miss all or part of any show, uh, we do have these on podcast. This week's show will be on Wednesday and uh, next week. And uh, all the others are on there now. Uh, Commercial free, he added. So uh, if you have a, a desire and interest to catch up, well, please feel free to do so. Well, we had an interesting week, a little something for everybody, a shortened week, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it ended on an up note. Uh, Yesterday, the Dow closed uh, with a gain of 329 points, ending at 33,374. The S&P up at 3,972. NASDAQ higher at 11,140. Russell 2000 finished the week at 1862. Gold uh, settled at nineteen twenty-five an ounce. Silver at twenty-four dollars six cents an ounce. Crude up to eighty-seven sixty-four a barrel. The ten-year Treasury now at three point four eight percent, and soft white wheat uh, got quoted at eight thirty-three a bushel. We've got a bunch more earnings reports coming out this next week. Uh, the biggest report will be Thursday when we get our first look at the fourth quarter GDP numbers. Uh, the anticipated number from G- GNP now, uh, that's the Fed's model, uh, expects growth of about 3.5%. And then Friday, we get a look at the PCE price index, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. So get your popcorn ready. It's going to be lots of fun. So what I want to do today is uh, go over uh, some market perspectives, uh, uh, talk about some of the economic reports that came out this past week. And then also uh, get into this debt ceiling stuff that's uh, apparently all that the uh, financial media can talk about right now. And uh, also uh, some thoughts on recession and what that might mean or not mean, depending upon your perspective, if you will. So last year, this is not new news, uh, was one of the worst for the S&P 500. But those losses make a lot more sense when you think about them in the context of the gains that came before. Now, in the three years before last year's drop of 18% in the S&P, the uh, the, year, the S&P was up 31%, 18%, and 28%. Now, we had a big loss in 22, uh, but with... In, well, since 2019, the S&P is still up over 60%, 60%. That translates uh, over that period to about 13% returns per year. So that's why you got to step back. Don't be just, I keep saying, don't look at the headlines. I mean, that all, all that'll do is confuse you and make you do something you uh, 
might regret. So, you know, last year is a good reminder. Downturns are never fun to deal with uh, as they're going on. But if you're able to zoom out, keep that long-term mindset, eventually the gains will outweigh the losses. Now, you know, a lot of people, for whatever reason, uh, have some hesitation about investing overseas. Um, you know, I can kind of get that, but it's really you're kind of sh- one of those uh, shoot yourselves in the foot deals because the top four countries in the MSCI World Index, that's made up of 23 countries um, since uh, three months ago. What are their best, what are the four best countries? Well, they are the Netherlands, Italy, Austria, and Germany. And those returns, respectively, are 41.7%, 41%, 40%, 40%, 39.7%, and that is in U.S. dollars. So, without the USA included, the MSCI All World All Country World Index was up 7.1%, and again, on a dollar basis, and the S&P up uh, about 4.2% over the same period. So, you know, it, it's less concerned about the international economies and a brighter look for the overseas stocks. And you have to, you know, if nothing else, if there's something about the country that the uh, company is based in, just look at the company. That's what you're investing in. You're not investing in the country. And, you know, when reality uh, beats negative expectations, stocks will typically climb that wall of worry. And as returns since the lows show, stocks move first because they anticipate reality beating expectations over the foreseeable future. They don't wait for the news that it's happened, that it's there's no all clear signal. Because if you're going to wait for one, you increase the chances of missing some significant returns. Stocks rising fast as a... So-so reality beats all these uh, woe-is-me expectations. Uh, well, that's a recovery hallmark in, the, in my experience. Now, this past week, uh, we had uh, both, well, we had some earnings, but uh, particularly uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley each recorded lower fourth-quarter profits, primarily because the deal-making was down. Okay, but here, here's the problem. Um well, here's the reality, is that the the Dow are, is what's called a weighted index. And so Goldman's 6% drop on, what was it, Thursday, I guess, took all by itself, knocked about 150 points off the index, the Dow. And so the higher a stock's price, the greater its influence on the index's overall move. So... Uh, its share price, Goldman's share price, is the second highest on the Dow. So it has a heavy, heavy effect on it. And that's why you have to be careful when you see the results in the Dow or the S&P. Uh, because if one or two of these stocks had a bad day, everybody else could be up and it still would have a net down. I know it's confusing, but that's how it goes. Uh, the... Well, since Goldman was down by so much, and because it has a high share price, a bad day for Goldman distorted the high, highest, in, uh, the entire index. Uh, you know, and Goldman isn't really all that big in terms of a company. It's the 70th largest stock in the index, but it, uh, as they say, punches far above its weight in terms of its influence on both Wall Street and the larger economy, because it's at the uh, innermost part of finance and so that's why those reports are watched pretty carefully 
But I think uh, using the price weighted indexes is kind of a tough way to go. You know, if you if you weigh them by market cap, and you can find those, you can look up S and P market cap weightings or Dow market cap weighting. Uh, it can give you a little bit different result. Uh, going back to November 21, the Dow is down by 3.4, while the S&P is off 14.2, simply because of the weighting of the uh, shares in the stock. Now, speaking of Goldman, they did have a pronouncement this past week. The U.S. stocks are driven by earnings, they say, and that's not new news, but and they're upward trending except for recessions. Well, yeah, and downdrafts pass and portfolios recover. They remind us that stocks are a discounting mechanism, pricing in what's expected to happen and not what's going on right now. They look ahead, 3 to 30 months. So the simple explanation for why stocks rallied when the earnings had fallen is that investors expect better growth in the years to come. Financials on a market cap weighted basis are up 20% since the lows of last June. Industrials up 21%, energy almost 20% since last June. And health cares and materials up 14 and 13% respectively. And that's just uh, since, the again, the back half of the year. Emerging markets uh, at a new six-month high. Europe just a millimeter or so from new 52-week highs. Uh, there's a lot of good things going on out there, but uh, if you just, again, hearken to the headlines, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities and, and just <laughs> underperformed on a uh, not a, not anticipated basis, I would say. Now, let's just swing over to the um, economy here, some of the economic reports. We had a report on the industrial sector. It wasn't great. Uh, it had its largest monthly decline in more than a year. Well... And once again, in context, it doesn't really mean a lot. But previous months were re revised significantly as well, downward, and industrial production off about 5.2% over the past three months. Well, this is, you know, American consumers shifting their preferences back toward services and away from goods, which is where all the action was uh, during the pandemic. Now, one thing I forgot to add uh, when I mentioned in the first segment about our podcast, you can find them on our website, opus111group.com, and uh, go, punch the learn button, whatever, and uh, you'll find them all right there. So, back to the uh, economic reports. Retail sales were off in December, down 1%, and that was a re followed a drop of 1% in November. Uh, and once again, it has a lot to do with the shift from uh, services to services from goods. The core sales, and that takes out the volatile categories of cars, building materials, gas stations, were off in December, but are up 3.3% uh, in the fourth quarter versus the third quarter average. Now, due to very loose monetary policy, you know, that's old news, and the massive increase in government payouts, Retail sales are still running higher than they would have had the pandemic never occurred. However, that loose monetary policy, which did help finance the big increase in government spending, is now translating into high inflation, which is why the real retail sales, that is, say, adjusted for inflation, are actually lower than a year ago. It doesn't mean overall spending is down. Retail sales only measure part of consumer spending. Because the vast majority of services, when you think about it, stuff like medical care, education, rents, they're not even included in that number. And most of consumer spending is services. So 
including services, overall consumer spending still rising. Now, producer prices, that's the one that measures inflation at the manufacturing level. We learned that it fell for the, the biggest single month since April of 2020. Falling costs for food and energy offset the rising prices for most other categories. And once again, it seems as if the service side will be the key area to watch in 2023. As we've seen over a lot of reports, the shift back to the services that were heavily restricted during the pandemic shutdowns is driving movement everywhere from employment to spending to inflation. We expect the path toward normal to be stickier than most anticipate as the economy continues to absorb that massive surge in money that the Fed, uh, with the government's help, injected in 20 and 21. Expect to see in the next uh, Fed meeting in two weeks a 25 uh, basis point, that's one quarter of 1% increase in the rates uh, when they meet in two weeks. And again, the Fed has basically said we're going to continue doing that throughout 2023. Now, a couple comments from some, um, I think, pretty smart guys. Jamie Damon, who is... Jamie Diamond, my apologies, uh, who is CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, had this to say, quote, I actually think rates are probably going higher than 5% because I think there's a lot of underlying inflation which won't go away so quick. Now, Morgan Stanley's CEO, James Gorman, he's optimistic. He said, for one, inflation is better. And I'm quoting, clearly inflation peaked. As you can see, here's two guys running two major huge banks. They're not even seeing things the same way. If you wonder why the markets are not trending one way or another, this could have something to do with it. He says, uh, clearly inflation has peaked. No, No longer a question. It's a fact. The question is, can the Fed get to 2% and how hard will they try to get to 2% versus stabilizing around 3 or 4%? Uh, He said uh, he can see the Fed raising rates by 25 basis points during its meeting and and, uh, that the Fed must tighten further to reduce inflation. Now, that's according to John Williams of the Fed. His comments echoed a speech by his Fed colleague, Leo Brainerd, earlier in the week, uh, but neither specified how high rates need to go or by how much. They always couch their bets, if you will. You know, and I think absent a true calamity. The Fed is unlikely to even pause rate hikes unless it sees the labor market soften. But employers are refusing to pull back openings, lay off workers, or cut payrolls on the view the Fed will probably pause and then cut. So you've got this push-me-pull-you thing going on. And speaking of jobs, we now have in the United States 159 million people employed. So please keep it in context. You know, in the last week, there's been all kinds of headlines, Microsoft, Google, uh, laying off people. Now, if you're one of those people, this is not a cool thing. I'm not making light of it, but let's put it in context, okay? Microsoft is laying off about 10,000 folks. Uh, They had approximately 221,000 people as of June last year, and 122,000 of them living here in the U.S. So that 10,000 is about 4.5% of the workforce, not exactly gutting the company. And Google says 12,000, which would be 6% of their workforce. Um, and so, and interestingly, yesterday, both stocks were higher on that news 
Because here's an example of, uh, well, bad news for the uh, uh, laid off folks is good news for the shareholders because the company is working to, well, manage their business better. That's just kind of how that works. Now, let me segue, if I can even do that, uh, into the debt ceiling stuff. Boy, oh boy. You know, I've said this many times, and the longer you pay attention to this stuff, you'll see it's true. The financial media gets a story or an idea in their craw, and they just beat it to death. All they, That's all you hear about in, in the headlines and in the interviews. And what do you think about fill in the blank? And, you know, these people go on and on and talk about what they think, and that's all fine. But right now, it's the debt ceiling. You know, first of all, it is... It's a lie that we've even hit our debt limit. That won't even happen for four or five months. So financial media folks lay off the fear mongering. The assumption behind the latest debt ceiling fear is something like this. The debt ceiling, which has been suspended for most of the last three years, isn't that interesting, is back in force now with only a little tiny bit of headroom left to increase borrowing. And with a divided government, oh, now, there's a surprise. The excessively pol politicized parties aren't likely to agree on much of anything. <laughs> Once again, not new news. Political brinkmanship never led to a default and probably won't in the future. But it's not certain. You know, markets must adjust the possibilities and the issue is already moving them long before the fact. This will be resolved eventually, but not until after a lot of political theater in Washington, which is the worst theater you can see good news is, well, I was going to say you don't have to pay for it, but technically I guess you do. Congress has struck a deal every time with this debt ceiling stuff over my entire career. That's never been a problem. And they'll likely do it again, maybe at the last minute, maybe earlier, maybe even a, a bit after the country runs out of the theoretical borrowing room, but it's too early to even talk about that. So what is the debt ceiling? Well, this goes back to 1917, uh, part of a response to the First World War. Before that, Congress had to vote every time government issued debt to finance spending. Not very efficient. And so the debt limit allowed Congress to set a number that the Treasury could borrow up to as needed, but not beyond. And Congress would then pass legislation to raise it. Well, it might be apparent to most of us that the debt ceiling doesn't limit debt. Since 1917, Congress has raised it well over 100 times. It has never failed to do so when needed, but many Americans dislike government debt, so both parties, yes, both parties, have at times used it as leverage to extract desired concessions from the other party, uh, which... <laughs> Those politicians that I hope tongue-in-cheek say they're being tough and on debt. Well, it, there really isn't any such thing, but politics is about appearance more than reality, form over substance. And today it's fashionable to tie this to spending constraints, even though Congress enacts spending under a separate legislation. The debt, the debt sorry, just facilitates it. So why do folks worry about it? That's a good question. Well, when one party tries using the debt ceiling as leverage, the common rebuttal from the other is that it risks U.S. default. And that sounds frightening. You know, default technically means only one thing, 
failure to pay interest or principal of U.S. Treasuries. But in the political comments lately, the common tactic among these uh, politicians is to change that definition and claim default means, quote, failure to pay on any obligation. Yeah, well, that's not true. And that would rope in a lot of other spending, including things like payments to contractors, vendors, and so on. Now, we've had government shutdowns before, late in 2018 and to early 2019, long one. During such periods, we have seen uh, government workers laid off, not paid, but they did get paid eventually. Many non-essential government departments close. You always wonder if they're non-essential, why are they open in the first place? But hey, that's just me. Uh, And vendors aren't paid, yet no one has called these a default. Stocks historically haven't even battered their proverbial stock eyes at shutdowns, having rallied throughout 2018 and 2019. So, if default is pay, failing to pay on treasuries, what is that? So, the debt ceiling is a limit that applies to increased borrowing. So, if a bond comes due, the government can issue debt while this at the ceiling to replace it. So, it takes the issue of defaulting on principal right off the table. Interest remains for sure, but the government's tax receipts give it ample cash to pay that without any new debt. Even in the worst possible month last year, the government would easily cover interest due and avoid default with money left over. So, but we don't run a deficit. What about the other spending? Okay, it's true that the situation where the debt ceiling isn't lifted and the government can't increase borrowing, some spending cuts would be required which is one reason why I think the politicians wouldn't let it happen, would they? But how exactly those look beyond debt payments? That's unclear. And we aren't arguing uh, that this is a great way to set policy. Far from it. But the government's revenues would cover a wide array of things beyond debt, and then it would be about choices. And in some ways, that could resemble the aforementioned government shutdown. Now, you may have heard or read that we've had divisive politics in the country for a long time. And yet, on the debt ceiling, politicians have always found a way to argue vociferously, promise no compromise, warn of fire and brimstone, the end of the world, and then they strike a deal. Uh, Brad McMillan, who is Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, said this, Although all this debt ceiling talk is a big deal, This has happened before and will happen again. He adds, while the ending could be really bad, every previous time, every previous time, we've ended resolving the problem. And that there are ways the problem could be resolved before June. Now, if Congress, he goes on to say, if Congress cannot or will not come to an agreement, there are indeed options short of default. And those options will happen before we default. As we saw in 08, the government is willing to do a lot of things previously unimaginable before letting the world blow up, and I'm quite certain, that's uh, Brad talking, I'm quite certain that it would be the case here as well. And I agree. You know, it's it's, uh, much ado about not a lot, but you wouldn't know it from, again, the financial media. So try not to pay attention to their saber rattling. Now about this recession stuff. You know, last March, March of 22, the media already had us in a recession, and they were saying it's only going to get worse. Then in June, it was, well, okay, a recession in the back half of 2022 is all but guaranteed. 
That then came October, and then had our baseline as a mid recession, as a mild recession in 2023, and now today it's all about a soft landing being in the cards. Well, according to Bank of America, recession probably won't start until later in 23, as consumer spending has been stronger than expected, and the Fed eases up on the intensity of its interest rate hikes. They add, we've pushed back the timing of our outlook for a bio-recession in the U.S. economy by one quarter, given durability and consumer spending on account of strong labor markets, excess saving, declining energy prices, and easier financial conditions, unquote. Now, just for a number, the Motley Fool, uh, which is a, well, they're money managers, but they're also, they also do a blog, um, they say that the average recession since 1950 has lasted 10 months, not exactly forever. Now, on the other hand, the average expansion has lasted uh, 69 months, <laughs> 7 to 1, okay? That's better. So, are we going to have recession in this year or not? You know, I'm, I'm afraid I got I to gotta fall to the no recession, maybe a, a soft landing recession at this point. Now, why do I say that? For one... Every time we've experienced a big spike in inflation historically, we've needed a recession and a rise in the unemployment rate to bring inflation back down. Another indicator that's been flashing red for some time now is that yield curve, which is about as inverted as it ever has been. Now, yield curve relates to interest rates between, well, uh, uh, 90 days and 30 years, and they plot out what those various rates are, and it creates a curve because the further out in time you go, you should get paid more because you have more risk. Well, lately it's been inverted, so the front end two-year, five-year are paying more than the 10-year because of uncertainty. So short-term bond yields are currently inverted and higher than long-term bonds, and this is an indicator that typically front-runs a recession, although it doesn't happen right away. Now, if you use market or economic history as a guide, it is almost impossible to think that we can avoid a recession. Plus, things were already trending in the wrong direction for inflation, and then the war happened, which only made things worse. To many, it just doesn't seem logical to consider a soft landing in the economy when where inflation falls. The unemployment rate doesn't rise too much, and GDP growth doesn't take too much of a hit. I think it's possible we could buck the trend here for a few reasons. Okay, number one, labor market remains strong. I've never seen anything like the current jobs market. There's still businesses that can't find enough folks to work for. Wages keep rising. Unemployment rate holds steady at low levels. Workers have likely never had more bargaining power than they do right now. And another point, the consumer was prepared for a slowdown. U.S. households have likely never been better positioned to write out high inflation or the potential for a slowdown in the economy. Consumers were already paying down debt and building up their savings following a wait. Then the pandemic hit. Then the government sent out a bunch of money. The people stopped spending because they couldn't do anything, with the result being trillions of dollars literally in excess savings. And that combination of pent-up demand and excess savings has now led to an explosion of spending but we're still nowhere near the pre-pandemic spending levels. 
And once people get a taste for spending money, as I'm sure most of us know, it's kind of hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It might take a recession to get households to rein in their spending. Yet another point to consider. The pandemic broke economic logic. Oh, did it ever. One of the biggest economic surprises is the fact that nothing has really broken yet. There was this assumption by the media and the quote-unquote pundits that the markets and economy couldn't possibly handle higher rates, and that was the reason the Fed kept them so low to begin with. Well, not only did borrowing... I'll get it right. Borrowing rates rise in 2022. They also did so at just about the fastest rate in history. But a strange thing happened. Nothing broke. Yes, financial markets took a hit. The economy has remained resilient. No financial crisis has been caused. The unemployment rate didn't rise. And inflation is still rolling over. Yeah, it's possible something could still break. Maybe all those excess savings have simply delayed the inevitable. It's still possible the economy could slow here or inflation could pick up. It does feel like there's a chance of heading off a recession because of the labor market has remained so strong. And if we do get a soft landing, the outlook for markets, rates, and the economy will probably have to change. So that's what I think about the recession, or a recession. Just a few closing comments about the market situation in general for your consideration. You know, imagine that these could be your uh, daily headlines for the next six months or so, given where we are right now. You know, when stocks go down, the story will be something like stocks fall as recession fears rise. And then when stocks go up, the headline stories, etc., will be stocks rise as investors weigh the possibility of a soft landing. They don't know. I mean, markets go up and go down because they go up and go down. I mean, that's it. There's no nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, sure, you can find some little news thing in there maybe once in a while. But for the most part, it's just how things are going that particular day. Peter Lynch, the uh, I, I don't know how he did it, but the guy who was the very best money manager I ever saw or heard of, uh, having run the Fidelity Magellan run Fund for multiple years and beating the S&P every year he did so. Uh, any ca- in any case, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, and I'm quoting, far more money has been lost by investors trying to anticipate corrections than lost in the correction themselves, unquote. Brian Belsky, uh, he is chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets, uh, has these data for you. In the past 90 years, the S&P 500 has only posted a more severe loss in 2022 on four occasions. That was 1937, 1974, that's when I started, 2002, and 2008. He added that in the subsequent calendar years, the index logged better than 20% gains each time with an average price return of 26.5%. See, this is the thing. You know, as I said at the outset of the program, excuse me, that you look at these numbers today and say, boy, we're, do- you know, we're not doing so good and the market's down and dot, da 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 Well, not since last June. Basically, we've moved higher. And, uh, you know, you can't be all caught up in the emotion of the day because you're not going to be using, well, you might be using some of the money today, but you're mostly going to be using it at some point in the future. Not necessarily 20 years 
but not day after tomorrow either. So there's going to be some time lag in how your uh, results are calculated, okay? And everybody who likely is listening to this has been around long enough to know that those markets I mentioned previously were pretty good. Now, there were days and weeks when they weren't doing so well, but net-net, uh, the record shows that they did well. And if you know that, if you saw that, then you have to, in my opinion, uh, internalize the fact that that's how markets work and build some emotional calluses so that you can deal with the foolishness that goes on uh, in D.C., on Wall Street, and everywhere else that causes these near-term aberrations in the marketplace. You know, the range of potential outcomes narrows the further out you go. There's still a range between very good and very bad outcomes. I'm talking about the market now. When you look at 10, 15, 20, 30 years returns, but nothing like what even one, three, and five-year ranges you could drive one of the per, those big old Mack trucks through. You can get crushed over a one- to five-year period. That is absolutely correct. That's possible, but highly unlikely if you hold on for longer periods. You can still have prior, poor outcomes over the long term, but nothing like the top type of bad markets you see over the short term. I mean, you can do your own homework and prove that to yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me, dang it. You're not guaranteed anything by extending your time horizon, but the historical numbers have shown the risk of getting annihilated slowly goes away as the years add up. Historical probabilities definitely favor the long-term investor. Now, here's some data that will reinforce that for you. More than 75% of 20-year periods have seen annual returns of 8% or more. Almost 96 of the 30-year time frames had annual returns of 9% or more. Now, that's not really good news if you're a 65-year-old person, perhaps. Uh, but it's great for someone who's 45, 50 younger. Um, and it's still good for uh, us more mature folks because it suggests that time is in your favor. Time is your friend. Over 30 years, that creates a return of more than 1,300%. The worst 30-year return was a gain of 800%. So it's okay. The stock market's long-term return profile has more than made up for the occasional, shall we say, deficiencies in the short term. Your patience will also be rewarded. Long-term investors always have a higher probability of success than do short-term investors. That's why traders, it's a tough job to be a trader. I mean, you know, you, you got to be right a lot of times, um, especially when you factor in taxes because most of the taxes are short-term, so that's ordinary income, so yay howdy. Uh, we as per private investors can get to go to long-term capital gains, which is the best tax rate there is, period. So... The variation in returns that you get, endure, depending upon your feeling, will always be higher over days and months than years and decades, especially if you try to time the market ups and downs. Long-term investing is never easy because you got to gut it out. you got to get build those emotional calluses to prevent you from making um, inappropriate decisions. But it will remain the best bet for the vast majority of folks to earn solid returns in the market. 
Now, the fixation on negatives to the exclusion of nearly everything else is a hallmark of the pessimism of disbelief. Now, this runs rampant as bear markets end, not begin, but as they end. For example, if you look at the recession fears which were running really high last June, the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index hit a record low from when it started in 1952, and it's been held down there near ever since. Now, forgive me, but that is definitely not warranted. I don't know. It's be, because we haven't had a bad market in so long. I think that folks kind of uh, have momentarily lost their minds a little bit. Besides consumer confidence, business and investment sentiment indicators have plumbed new lows. Same thing. But look at it from a market perspective. Sir John Templeton, he was a pretty smart guy. They call him a legendary investor. He said, and I'm quoting, bull markets are born on pessimism, unquote. When pessimism becomes excessive and overshoots reality far to the downside, with people widely ignoring or dismissing signs of improvement, which are all around us, he added, conditions for a bull market recovery, initial V-shaped re rebound, are ripe for the taking. Now, we definitely see a whole wide gap between reality and expectations today, which, to the way I look at the markets, is ample fuel for an upside surprise to drive a new bull market this year and give me some credibility for saying that, uh, you know, I'm not really concerned about a recession. But I'm not concerned about a recession anyway, because and again, I think this is uh, the recency bias. Folks think of recession as 2008. No, 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 no. There was a whole lot of things that came together in a bad way in 2008 and nine. But a typical, if you will, recession is just a slowing of the economy. And uh, it rejiggers things and resets things so that it can be in position to move higher again. There's no reason to be afraid of a recession as long as you're staying, as far as your investments are concerned, staying with quality, being diversified. You're not trying to be a fortune teller because uh, that's, again, a risky business. And you are looking for how to get to where you want to be when you want to be there in, in a manner that you feel comfortable getting there. Don't be looking at uh, online computer programs to say, well, if you're this old and you don't got this much money, then do this and all will be uh, revealed. No. Stay with quality, diversify, and don't get out of the market. So this is the end of our little show for this week. I thank you very much for listening. Uh, and we got <laughs> we got to we got to make some sacrifices somewhere and get the zags back on stream here again. Uh, but uh, Saturday. Well, today, <laughs> we're going to get another chance to get back in the W column, so let's go get them. And we'll be back next week with more market news for you. I hope you have a positive and productive week, and I thank you again for listening. You've been listening to Money Management, powered by the Opus 111 Group. This is Mike Mayo. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.